0: We we'll said that the neuromuscular junction is the place where the nerve, the axon of the neuron, connects to the muscle fiber. And the mechanisms here, the mechanisms by which the signal coming down from the central nervous system gets to the muscle fiber and stimulates the muscle fiber, these mechanisms um, will be explained. Further, in uh, the next chapter, uh, chapter 12, I think it is, on nervous system, 40B. But just a quick summary here, and uh, this picture is showing uh, some of the components of that connection between the axon terminal and the muscle fiber, or sarcolemma, which is the plasma membrane of the muscle fiber. So what happens here is that the signal, the order coming from the central nervous system, comes down the axon in terms of electricity that we call action potential, and we call that nerve impulse, and it's represented by an arrow here, a purple arrow, coming down. And when it gets when it gets to the axon terminal, the uh, this nerve impulse will make vesicles that contain acetylcholine, this chemical. These vesicles will release the acetylcholine by exocytosis into that space called synaptic cleft, which is the space between the axon terminal and the membrane of the muscle fiber. They actually don't get to touch each other. There is a very they are very close to one another but there's a small space called synaptic cleft. So that's where the acetylcholine is released. And as we amplify this a little bit, we can see more detail of this. All that part, all that part of the sarcolemma that we call the plasma membrane or the muscle fiber, all that part that is close to the axon terminal is we call the motor end plate. The motor end plate. Because that's a place that that part of the membrane of the muscle fiber will have receptors receptors that are specific for acetylcholine so the acetylcholine, this chemical neurotransmitter when it's released from the axon terminal it will be in the synaptic cleft and it will reach receptors that are on the sarcolemma of the muscle fiber and in green we can see the receptors. So This acetylcholine is going to bind the receptors And, when that happens, these receptors are at the same time channels for sodium. This ion sodium is surrounding the muscle fiber and it will quickly get inside the cell, inside the muscle fiber. That will produce, that will make the sarcolemma to change its electrical charge and it will generate an action potential, a nerve impulse that stimulates this membrane will turn another nerve, in this case action potential that will travel along the sarcolemma and that will be the signal, that order coming from the central nervous system in terms of electricity or action potential. So what happens is summarized here again when we have the, the, the conscious thought and we actually Send the order from the cerebral cortex to move a muscle, the motor neuron, which is located in the brain, in the cerebral cortex of the brain, will come down bringing the signal. It will release the neurotransmitter acetylcholine at the neuromuscular junction, synaptic cleft, and it, we see it here the acetylcholine being released and binding to the receptors. Now, This acetylcholine will stimulate the membrane of the muscle fiber, but it will not stimulate the fiber forever. It has a time. It will stimulate, pass the order, and then it has to be removed. The acetylcholine has to be removed from the scenario. And that is achieved by the acetylcholinesterase, which is an enzyme. This enzyme is going to break down the molecules of acetylcholine after a short period of time and that is necessary otherwise the acetylcholine will keep stimulating the muscle fiber and the muscle contraction will have no end but that's not the way it is we contract a muscle and the muscle relaxes so those are the components of the neuromuscular junction where the nerve brings the signal and that signal is transmitted to the muscle fiber Now the plasma membrane the plasma membrane of the muscle fiber related to the neuromuscular junction is called the motor end plate and we saw that in the previous diagram that segment of the sarcolemma related to the neuromuscular junction is called the motor end plate and that motor end plate it contains lots of sodium channels Sodium channels that will respond to the neurotransmitter acetylcholine. Receptors for acetylcholine are actually part of these sodium channels. So when the acetylcholine binds the uh, those receptors, they are at the same time the same protein that makes a channel for sodium and that's what we see in these two diagrams. The place or active site for sodium is here, I mean for acetylcholine. Here we see the acetylcholine bound. And this channel is closed initially but now it's open and we can see some particles going through, coming in, and some others coming out. What are those elements? Sodium and potassium. Sodium and potassium are the responsible to change the electrical charge of the sarcolemma. And in that way make the action potential travel along the membrane of the muscle fiber. And that is the most important thing. The action potential is required so it will stimulate the muscle fiber and the action potential will also trigger other mechanisms as you will see. We have a detailed view of the Uh, receptors and the acetylcholine, how they relate to each other, how the acetylcholine is being released and binds to the receptors and you can see the sodium coming in, the sodium is flowing inside but then the acetylcholine is broken it is removed so the action, the stimulation will stop now this action potential in the muscle is very important because this muscle action potential is going to stimulate or trigger other events that will lead to the muscular contraction. This is just the electrical event. Electrical event at the beginning. The muscle is not contracting yet. All this happens in fractions of seconds right before the muscle starts contracting. So now this action potential that is being... Uh, generated in the membrane of the muscle fiber is going to travel, travel and spread on the surface of the uh, sarcolemma and there's a lot of channels, a lot of channels on the membrane that will regulate the passage of sodium and potassium which are the main responsibles for this action potential generation and spread and propagation of this action potential. These channels that we see here are called voltage-gated, which means that when the voltage changes, these channels will open. The voltage means the action potential traveling along the membrane. It will change the voltage of the membrane, the charge of the membrane, and these channels will open, giving place to these events that will be translated into the action potential travel along the plasma membrane of the muscle fiber. And now, if we represent all these events in a curve, we will see this picture. And in this picture we see some faces in green and red parts of the curve in different segments of the curve that we call depolarizing phase and repolarizing phase. Well, if we measure the electricity inside and outside the membrane of the muscle fiber, we'll find differences. And this electrical um, activity or action potential can be represented with a curve. What this means, it means that the muscle fiber from being at minus 70 millivolts which is the which is the resting memory potential that's how we call it from minus 70 after the stimulation from the uh, that comes from the nerve with acetyl calling this value of millivolts will go up to plus 30 and that's the green segment of the curve That's called depolarizing phase. From minus 70, the voltage goes up to plus 30. That plus 30 is the peak. When it reaches that peak, different channels will open and sodium, potassium will flow in different ways, reverting the charge of the muscle fiber. And now we have the red segment of the curve called repolarizing phase. And then we see that the line is returning to the basal level or the resting membrane potential. This time, uh, the time is measured here in milliseconds. This probably happens in two or three milliseconds, much before the muscular contraction happens. This is the electrical events, just electricity. So, simplifying this, if we think about the signal coming from the nerve, in terms of electricity, is electricity running, being passed to the membrane of the muscle fiber, and that electricity now is traveling along the membrane of the muscle fiber. Yes? So how many of those cycles does it take to do like a full range motion? For the full range motion. This action potential, this action potential determines a single muscle fiber contracting. But then, if you want to contract a muscle, let's say for five seconds or 10 seconds, one muscle fiber will contract in a very short period of time. To contract more muscle fibers, you have to send more orders, and in a different sequence. So probably, in the first uh, part of muscle fibers, you will have to stimulate a 100 muscle fibers, and then they will stop, they will relax, and you get another 100 muscle fibers contracting to take over the muscular contraction. So you you have a sustained muscular contraction for many seconds, you're probably just recruiting muscle fibers and relaxing others until you get that sustained muscular contraction. So this action potential determines the contraction of one muscle fiber. Now, each muscle fiber receives connections from not only one neuron, it receives connections from many neurons. And sometimes the muscle fiber I mean, the neurons connect to 100 muscle fibers. Sometimes it connects to two muscle fibers, just 1,000 muscle fibers. It depends on the type of muscle, the size of the muscle, and the place in the body. We'll see more of that in the next uh, part. Let me try this. I think this is not working well. But, uh, yeah, the same thing. Got the same problem last time. So, all these things the action potential. Uh, terms that we are using now, like the voltage, millivolts, repolarization, depolarization, these are terms that are used also for nervous system. When we get to nervous system, we'll study this to more to the detail. What happens exactly during the depolarization phase with the sodium channels, potassium channels, and, um, and all that. This is another slide that shows, in a summarized way, all the events that happen during a muscle action potential, that electricity that is generated on the membrane of the muscle fiber. In the first place, here we divide the all the sequence in three segments of time. In the time one, what we see is the resting membrane potential, which is in value in numbers minus 70 millivolts. Now in time two what happens is that the curve from being a minus 70 goes <coughs> high to plus 30 plus 40 why because sodium channels will open and we can see here the sodium coming in inside the cell. Sodium is a positive charge so when it comes inside the cell it will change the polarity and the time one if you observe you can see representation of the membrane, and inside is negative, and outside is positive. But then in time two, when the sodium comes inside the cell, now inside the cell turns positive, and outside turns negative. That's why we call that depolarization. The electrical charges will just change. And in time three, time three, what we see is potassium channels open. And if potassium channels open, now the potassium is going to leave the cell, and going out. So the cell is losing positive charges and it's turning negative. That's why in time three, you see the charges inside the membrane are negative and outside is positive. In the curve, what we see? Well, we're returning to the initial state. See the curve coming down now and getting back to the baseline which is minus 70 millivolts. So that electricity will spread along the membrane or the muscle fiber, and it will trigger the mechanism of the myofibers that we explained uh, last time. Yes? So, is this happening with sodium-potassium pump, or is that something really different? potassium pump is different. These are sodium and potassium channels, just simple channels, just simple pores. Uh, when we talk about active, Transport. We talk about the sodium pump, potassium, uh, sodium-potassium pump, which is important. It's important because it's going to maintain this difference. The, the sodium-potassium pump is important to keep the resting membrane potential all the time at minus 70, and actually helps in the repolarization at the final stage of the repolarization phase. So summarizing here, sodium. Gates, or channels, will open during depolarization phase, and potassium gates, or channels, will open during the repolarization phase. Yes. So the depolarization phase, is that considered time 2 then? Yes, exactly. And repolarization will be time 3. Now we have everything together here. We call this excitation-contraction coupling because these events that we've been explaining on uh, last Thursday, we talked about the contraction mechanisms, the sliding of the myofibrils and actin and myosin, everything, but today we just described the stimulation of the muscle fiber by the nerve impulse. So here we have everything together. And let's go one step by step. Checking everything that happens from the stimulation from the nerve until the muscle contracts, muscle fiber contracts. Number one, the nerve impulse arrives at the axon terminal of the motor neuron and triggers the release of acetylcholine. The acetylcholine is released to the synaptic cleft and binds to the receptors that are found on the motor end plate of the muscle fiber that will trigger a muscle action potential electricity now in the membrane of the muscle fiber in step number 3 the acetylcholinesterase from the synaptic cleft will take care of the acetylcholine the extra acetylcholine to stop the stimulation and now, since the muscle action potential has been generated, that is represented by the red, red arrows all over the muscle. I mean, the uh, the membrane of the muscle fiber. So this electricity is running. It's spreading. It's propagating along the surface of the membrane. The step number four. Look at the arrows. It's going into the transverse tubules. And if you remember from that previous class, we talked about the transverse tubules, which are extensions of the plasma membrane that gets very close to the myofibril. And right next to the sarcoplasmic reticulum. Remember, we defined the triad, T-tubule, transverse tubule plus two terminal cisternae that belong to the sarcoplasmic reticulum. Well, the electricity or muscle action potential now is getting deep in the transverse tubules, still running along the surface of the membrane, but it's going to stimulate also the membrane of the sarcoplasmic reticulum. And that's what we have in number four. The action potential traveling the transverse tubule will open calcium channels in the sarcoplasmic reticulum. (coughs) And the calcium is stored inside the sarcoplasmic reticulum. That's one of the uh, main functions of the sarcoplasmic reticulum in the muscle fiber, to keep calcium. There's lots of calcium inside the sarcoplasmic reticulum. So when the action potential gets closer, it will activate these channels, and calcium will flow. To where? To the cytoplasm. To the cytoplasm. Now we see the calcium in the cytoplasm. And what's in the cytoplasm? The myofibrils. cytoplasm of the muscle fiber is full of myofibrils. And now the calcium is free there and getting close to the troponin. It's getting close to the troponin and we see it here binding all the purple circles of the calcium. We see them binding to the troponin. And it binds the troponin, step number five, Pulls the tropomyosin, which is covering the active sites for myosin, and we can see that here. All these dark dots are the sites that have been exposed. We see the calcium bound to the troponin, and muscular contraction will start. The myosin heads, or the thick filaments, will start binding, the power stroke, the bending and the sliding of the filaments will occur. Yes? So the number 5 is when the cross bridge happens? And number 6, oh yeah, in between number 5 and number 6. In number 5, the sides are exposed for the myosin and then quickly the myosin heads will attach to it. And then number 6, power stroke will happen. And then, after the contraction is done, When the muscle relaxes, the myosin heads will detach from the actin thanks to the ATP action and the tropomyosin comes back and covers the sites, the calcium that was the bound, the the, the troponin now is free and it returns to the sarcoplasmic reticulum Now we see number 7, calcium is returned to the, to the sarcoplasmic reticulum. And in the muscle fiber, I mean in the myofibers we see troponin, tropomyosin, complex slide back to the initial put, uh, position. And when that happens, the muscle relaxes, the muscle fiber relaxes. So all the sequence of nine steps describe what we call excitation-contraction coupling. Any questions? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um in the changing of the polarization of the muscle, where um does the, the ancient mutant and why doesn't matter get rid of this yeah around the muscle fiber, you no know, all the cells and tissues are in surrounded by interstitial fluid. Okay, and that interstitial fluid contains all these components, sodium, potassium, calcium, proteins, nutrients, glucose, everything that will be used by the cell. So when these sodium channels, we say sodium channels open. Yeah, they open, but the sodium comes in. Why the sodium comes in? Just by difference in concentration, by what we call concentration gradient, because there's more sodium outside the cell than inside the cell and the sodium will move from an area of higher concentration to a lower concentration. As soon as we open a channel, we open a door, the sodium will start coming in because sodium is there. And same thing for the potassium. You open a potassium channel and there is more potassium inside the cell than outside the cell. So you open that door and the potassium starts leaving spontaneously by concentration gradient. Now the calcium will not go through because Calcium channels will not open, they will not open there, only sodium and potassium channels. And they will determine the muscle action potential. Calcium channels will open in the sarcoplasmic reticulum in order to release calcium to the cytoplasm. Any other questions? I have a question. Yeah. Uh, So what opens the sodium and potassium channels? Those are channels that we call voltage-gated. So as soon as the voltage starts changing on the surface of the membrane, the sodium channels will open. And why the, 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 the voltage of the membrane changes? Because the acetyl binding the receptors, sodium starts coming in, change the voltage, and there are more sodium channels called voltage-gating. These ones, the green ones, they open under the simulation of the acetyl But then there are many others which are voltage-gated channels, And those are the ones that open for the depolarization of the membrane. Same for the potassium. When the peak gets to plus 40, plus 30, that's the trigger for the potassium channels to open. They are voltage-gated. When the voltage reaches plus 30, plus 40, plus 40, the potassium channels will open. So many things involved in the muscular contraction. From here, we can learn that there are many requirements for the muscle to contract. One of them is the main, the nerve impulse is necessary. Then what else we need? Well, we need calcium. The muscle fibers must have calcium in the sarcoplasmic reticulum. Third, we need ATP's, the myosin heads to move for the power stroke and sliding. ATP's are required. ATP's are required to move, for, for giving the energy to move, the power stroke, and also to detach from the actin the myosin here from the actin to detach, and ATP is required there. And of course we need the myofibers in good condition, the muscle fibers working properly, so all these will happen normally. And since we said the muscle fibers is surrounded by an interstitial fluid with sodium and potassium, if these electrolytes change, because of dehydration, because of excessive administration of potassium or sodium, then the, the, the fluid around the muscle will have less or more sodium and potassium, and that may, may affect the muscular contraction, the transmission of the electricity. That's why when we are dehydrated or in muscular fatigue, um, we are required to uh, rehydrate with water, but also with electrolytes to make sure that There's enough sodium and potassium around the muscle fiber. Muscle spasm. does that have anything to do with the voltage? Yes. It has to do, uh, the spasm has to do with many factors from here. First, maybe an excessive electrical stimulation from the nerve, which may happen in this disease called tetanus, which is a toxin that affects the nerves, and the nerves overstimulate the fibers, and we see muscular contraction. Another mechanism is the muscular fatigue the lack of atps so the myosin heads remain attached to the actin and the muscle remains contracted excessive amount of calcium that will not detach properly and the muscle remains contracting and all these may damage the myofibers at the end and you have a muscle tearing or damage of the muscle fibers and of course as painful. And now that we're talking about this uh, muscle fiber contraction, uh, there is something called rigor mortis. Rigor mortis, this guy is dead. (laughs) Not alive, not sleeping, he's dead. A rigor mortis is a state of muscular stiffness that happens after death. And the explanation is based on the physiology of the muscle fiber. Because remember, we said for muscular contraction, the myosin heads attached to the actin, and the ATPs allow the power stroke, but then the ATP is necessary to detach the myosin heads from the actin. After death, there's no more production of ATPs. So there is not enough ATPs to detach the myosin heads from the actin, and they just remain there, stuck. And that's why there's a table for this, I don't think I have it here, but this is a table that tells you the different times at which rigor mortis happens. Um, And that's used in forensics, when uh, someone is assessing uh, a crime scene and they they say they found a body, and the team goes there and they take different factors, like the temperature of the body, um, the degree of muscular stiffness, because this rigor mortis starts after maybe after three four hours and six hours is maximum stiffness It's complete stiffness if you find a body someone dead on the floor and you try to lift the head i mean the the, the legs you will see the body like a, like only one big stiff like a stick you won't be able to bend the knees or the thighs over the the, the trunk It will all be a whole thing and you can even put the body in between two chairs and be like whole piece, rigid. So that's rigor mortis. But then after 12 hours, 18 hours, the muscle kind of relaxes. And why it relaxes? It's no ATP, no more production of ATPs. what happens is the muscle starts to decompose, the proteins, actin and myosin, the myosin has to start to break. They break off from the actin. And then you can come and move the body better. It's not so stiff. You can bend the knees a little bit and mobilize different parts of the body. And those times at which that happens are taken into account when assessing uh, 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 bodies that are found dead. And we establish uh, how many hours? Oh, they died six hours ago, 12 hours ago, one day ago. And not only that, there are other factors that they take into account for this. So rigor mortis is... That is stiffness, and that happens after death because the myosin heads remain attached to the actin, and that's because of lack of ATP after death. So this is the sequence that we just described in the, in the diagram. First, the thought process, then the action potential, getting to the neuromuscular junction, then the regeneration of the action potential, but now on the muscle membrane, When this action potential of the muscle reaches the sarcoplasmic reticulum, calcium is released and the calcium allows the mechanism of sliding thick on thin filaments in the sarcomere and we have muscular contraction That's a picture of the transverse tubule transverse tubule and the sarcoplasmic reticulum and you can see how This transverse tubule is an extension of the membrane, so that's how the action potential gets deep and close to the sarcoplasmic reticulum, which is part of the triad, terminal cisterna on both sides and the T-tubule in the middle. You can see the myofibrils there and many mitochondria, many mitochondria around, lots of ATP's are needed of course. Alright, now let's talk about the energy and metabolic needs, yes? Yes, exactly, they are distributed all along the sarcomeres in between and uh, providing enough space for the calcium to spread around and, and activate all that, and you can imagine there are lots of calcium needed and also lots of ATP's because all the myofibrils as you see them here, are like cylinders, are like bundles of myofibers. We've been describing one actin and myosin like this, but imagine this like a bundle of thousands of myofibers contracting at the same time. Imagine the amount of calcium and ATPs that are needed for all the muscle, of long muscle to contract. So now let's see where the energy is coming from for the muscular contraction. There are different steps, different uh, phases, and the times that are listed here are referential. It's not exactly that amount of time, but it gives you an idea of the sequence and the duration of each of the phase. First of all, we need ATPs for muscular contraction. If we want to move a muscle, contract a muscle quickly, as soon as you think about moving a muscle, you move it. Well, we need ATPs stored, and those are stored in the muscular fiber, inside the muscle cell, in the cytoplasm, there are ATPs, molecules of ATPs there, available to uh, to be used. And that lasts for about three seconds, the first three seconds of muscular contraction. And then if we need to keep moving the muscle, we need more ATPs, and we have to get them from creatine phosphate. Creatine phosphate is a compound, as the name says, phosphate. This creatine phosphate participates in the generation, a quick generation of ATPs. Well, that happens in the first 12 seconds. I mean, the next 12 seconds after the first three seconds where we use stored ATP molecules. But if we need to move the muscle beyond those 12 seconds, we still need more ATPs and the creatine phosphate is not enough we need to start making more ATP the more ATP in the sequence we start making ATPs from anaerobic metabolism using glucose The glucose glycolysis we have uh, seen this glycolysis getting into the Krebs cycle and uh, I mean and, uh, before getting into the Krebs cycle it generates ATPs, but few amount of ATPs. And that will be enough for 30, 40 seconds more. But then if you keep moving the muscle, how how much time is this? One minute, two minutes probably? But if we need more, more ATPs have to be produced, and that happens by aerobic metabolism. Meaning, the, the, metabolism has to go into the Krebs cycle the sequence remember is glycolysis Krebs cycle and then oxidative phosphorylation in the mitochondria and after that we have lots of ATPs 36 molecules of ATPs per molecule of glucose that is aerobic production of ATPs using oxygen oxygen is needed here at that point point. and if we keep moving the muscle for many minutes our body will start making ATPs actively in the mitochondria using oxygen. Yes. So how about for the involuntary muscles that we have, right? So like our heart and our diaphragm that unconsciously we're using all the time. Is this type of ATP taking place constantly now? Yes. And for muscles contracting for a long time, there must be an aerobic, aerobic production of ATPs because that's the mechanism that provides lots of ATP for a long period of time. Like the heart, for instance, And it's oxygen. If there's no oxygen, the muscle will not contract. And a, a smooth muscle, the same thing. The diaphragm is skeletal muscle, it works in the same way. Usually, most of the time, we are contracting our muscles for more than one minute. When we're walking, for instance, or we're riding, we're doing many things. Unless we make small movements, and uh, the sequence always goes in this way. First, stored ATP, then creatine phosphate, then anaerobic metabolism, and then aerobic uh, metabolism for making lots of ATPs. This is how the creatine phosphate provides a phosphate group for production of ATPs. is actually transfer, it transfers the phosphate to the ATPs. Look at this, this is the creatine phosphate and a molecule of ADP, and there's a transfer of this phosphate to ADP, and now we have an ATP. And the creatine, just as a single molecule. Now this ATP, when it's used, release the phosphate and turns into ADP. And this ADP may combine with more creatine phosphate, transfer the phosphate and make ATPs quickly. Few seconds, 10, 15 seconds, creatine phosphate provides phosphate for making ATPs so the muscle can use it. And these are for uh, quick, very quick muscular contractions. Like you lift weights only one time. big bar with weights and five seconds you lift it up and then relax well you need lots of ATPs for that an important amount comes from creatine phosphate and creatine phosphate there's these supplements of creatine that are sold and um, Mistakenly, it's, some people have taken it uh, with a misconception that it's going to help to increase muscular size, and that's not the point. The point is to increase efficiency of the muscular contraction, but for the first few seconds, and just that. You don't need more than that. If you want to grow muscle, just have a workout routine with specific purpose and goals, and there are other mechanisms to make your muscle grow. The creatine supplements will not help you for that. Okay, yes? So would that sort of supplement help with the um, the, the restoriveness of the muscle and healing quicker and being able to work more? I mean, is that what that's helping? Not necessarily the size. but Isn't that kind of like how a steroid works? You can just keep on going. Yeah, the natural cycle is... Uh, When you, let's say, you start working out your muscles with specific routines, you force your muscle and establish a routine so the muscle fibers will adapt to the new situations. You're making a lot of efforts and the metabolism will be first, will be increased. For what? Making more ATPs, increase the number of mitochondria, and second, to repair the proteins that are damaged or to provide more because you're making more efforts. So the muscle, by homeostasis, will start making more myofibrils in order to respond more to the challenges. And after some period of time, you see the muscle growing. There are more myofibrils. That's what happens. The muscle fiber increases in size, it gets bigger. Now, the the effectiveness of the contraction, of course, changes. Now, steroids, they help to increase the metabolism and make this process faster. Faster. And it utilize, make the muscle fiber utilize amino acids much faster, incorporated into myofibrils. And if you add more supplements of amino acids, like those products that sell, like milk, muscle milk, and contain amino acids of different types, and if you have a workout routine plus steroid use, plus muscle make components and all that, and you have in three months, you have growth of muscle like this. But of course, all the disadvantages of using steroids on the body, which is not, not healthy at all, and uh, but some people do that to reach a goal, quick, in a quick, brief period of the time. Now, not everyone is going to grow muscles like this. And if you want to start working out, your genetics will determine how big your muscles will grow sometimes people start working out and say, I'm gonna grow my muscles like that. and I can't do it. Well, that's your genetics, you're not gonna get, unless you use steroids and then you got big muscles. But other than that, you will probably be, grow the muscle, but not like huge muscles that are like some people do. So yeah, it's replacement, a quick replacement and increase the metabolism, what makes it grow. Yeah, the body is, everything is about homeostasis. As long as you have a routine, a workout routine, and you keep it for a long period of time, your muscles will remain the same size. But if not, if you stop doing all types of exercise, you're not forcing your muscles at all, then progressively, along the time, your muscles will start to shrink. Sometimes they won't shrink completely until your initial state, but you see, notably that you see a decrease in the size. No, they, they are reabsorbed. They are broken down and, and the amino acids are taken. Yeah, that's what happens. But usually it happens, and not spectacularly, but you see the decrease in, in, in muscle size. And also aging process happens. I mean, it's another factor. The muscle fibers are replaced by connective tissue, scar tissue, progressively as part of the natural damage of the cells by the aging process. Okay, so all this muscle energy, where is coming from? We see it here. The first step was stored ATP, second creatine phosphate, and the third step is anaerobic metabolism, anaerobic glycolysis, which provides just two ATPs per molecule of glucose. Which is just a little bit, not much. That's why. It's just for brief period of time. 30, 40 seconds, 60 seconds perhaps, but not more than two minutes. If you need more, you have to switch, your muscle have to switch to aerobic metabolism for making more ATPs. And the colysis and cellular respiration from the mitochondria will give place to 36 ATPs per molecule of glucose. When we want to contract our muscles for a long periods of time, like minutes or even hours. It is maintained by aerobic metabolism. And oxygen is required for this. That's the reason why we start increasing our respiratory rate when we start exercising. We need more oxygen. There's a point at which we have to switch from anaerobic to aerobic, and that's the point we start breathing faster. That's another way to show how fit you are. That's called the aerobic threshold. They measure that in uh, uh exercise physiology you can notice that if you are not working out you don't exercise at all and uh you start some challenge like you start running for like five minutes after the second minute you're so tired like <sighs> but then you start exercising like for six weeks constantly like one uh three times in a week. Uh, 30 minutes you walk and you just kind of change it. And then you do the same challenge and you run the 5 minutes. You're not tired at all. Your threshold is changing. Your body is getting adjusted. So you now you don't have to use much oxygen because now you have more mitochondria. Your muscle fiber is adapting to the challenge. And that's what happens in exercise. Of course, it has to be constant routine for a long period of time. At least six weeks. After six weeks of having a routine, then you can see changes in your uh, in your metabolism and your threshold. And the metabolism includes the utilization of oxygen and the elimination of waste products like carbon dioxide, which is exhaled or breathed out. Uh, heat is generated by the muscles. Well, the energy that is generated by the muscle is very inefficient because 70 to 80% of the energy is lost as heat. That's why we start sweating when we start exercising because the energy that is generated and part of it is used by the muscle for work, but the rest is dissipated as heat. And lactic acid which is the main product in anaerobic metabolism. Lactic acid may be um, reused, reused by our body, it goes to the liver and returns, it is transformed, unless there's an excessive amount and may cause muscular fatigue. Epoch or excess post-exercise oxygen or oxygen depth, This is called depth, or repayment of oxygen, that happens after we exercise, after we use skeletal muscle for a long time. And that's what happens when you start running for 20 minutes, let's say, and then you stop. You stop your muscles, but your respiration keeps going, like, like for five minutes, bro. That's the oxygen depth. You have to keep breathing and getting oxygen to replenish your ATP stores, to create more creatine, phosphate, myoglobin, which provides oxygen to the muscle fiber. The excessive amount of lactic acid will be turned into pyruvate or pyruvic acid that may be used again for making more ATPs. All that happens when we are breathing fast after after the exercise. this is a, a diagram of what happens when the glucose is utilized by the cell. If oxygen is absent then it goes to anaerobic lactate production. But oxygen is present then it switches to Cellular respiration, oxidative phosphorylation, to make lots of ATPs, and that the cells, the cells adapt to this. And then more work is needed; it quickly switches to uh, aerobic metabolism. What about the cardiac and smooth muscle? Well, the cardiac muscle contracts <clears throat> longer than skeletal muscle, and uh, for a lifetime. So it needs a rich supply of oxygen. To generate ATPs all the time, mostly by aerobic respiration, the heart contracts all lifetime and it needs a constant supply of oxygen. Smooth muscle is not voluntary. It's found in the digestive system, respiratory system, blood vessels. <coughs> And a smooth muscle has a low capacity for generating ATPs. And in most of the cases, the smooth muscle don't need to go into aerobic metabolism and just stay in anaerobic. Because it contracts very slowly, not so intensely, like the cardiac muscle, you make pauses. What is a motor unit? motor unit is a group of motor neurons plus all the cells, muscle fiber cells, that are connected to that motor neuron. And there are two types of motor units, high precision and low precision. The difference is, in the high precision, there are fewer muscle fibers innervated by neurons. Like one neuron innervates from two to twenty muscle fibers. It's high precision. Low precision, many muscle fibers per neuron, like two thousand, three thousand muscle fibers per neuron. So one neuron controls two thousand fibers, muscle fibers, like muscles of the thigh. When we want to contract the muscle of the thigh, we contract almost the whole muscle. And we don't need one neuron per each muscle fiber. One neuron will innervate many thousands of muscle fibers for that type of contraction. But in places like extraocular muscles, we move our eyes very accurate motions or movements of the fingertips. There are few muscle fibers per neuron. That's why they call high precision motor units. And that becomes important because if you damage that neuron that controls 2,000 fibers of the thigh, then many muscle fibers will be completely unusable. You cannot contract them anymore. But in the hand, if you damage one neuron, then the other neurons can supply the function of the neurons that were damaged. That's the principle of physical therapy. If you damage damaged of some neurons, of the nerves, of the, of the hand... By physical therapy and exercise, you can learn learn how to activate and uh, balance the function that has been lost. But many exercises and the full activity is not recovered, perhaps, but 80%, 90% of the activity of the muscles can be uh, restored. All or none principle of muscle contraction that refers to one muscle fiber. So muscle fiber, when it's stimulated, it goes and depolarizes, action potential, depolarizing, repolarizing, and it will give full contraction. There's no partial contraction. It will fully contract one muscle fiber. What happens, and the reason why I can contract a muscle like the biceps and lift different weights, or contract a muscle mightly or stronger, is because we recruit motor units, if I recruit more motor units, I will contract more muscle fibers, but one muscle fiber, it contracts or it will not contract, it's a full contraction. The muscle, there's thousands of muscle fibers, and I can choose to recruit the number of muscle fibers that I need for a determined muscle effort. Yeah. Lecture. There was a slide where you showed where there was a partial contraction of the muscle, so that doesn't really take place then. It's, it's either fully contracted or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those were just uh, an example to show how strong a muscle can contract depending on the state at which the myofibers are. Yeah, but one... When one muscle fiber contracts, it will contract completely. There's no partial contraction. Now, there are different types of muscle fibers. And we can describe, under the microscope and with special stainings, we can see it. We can see the difference between red fibers and white fibers. We can see it in chicken, chicken legs, the meat is darker. Chicken breast its white, with white muscle fibers and red muscle fibers. But we can see the difference also under the microscope with special stain. And why the difference? Red muscle fibers, they have more myoglobin, more mitochondria, and greater blood supply. And muscle fibers are white. They have less myoglobin, mitochondria, and less blood supply. Now we have names for all these fibers that are related to their physiology. We have slow oxidative fibers. They are the ones that look red. They are very fatigue-resistant, they are not so powerful for contraction, but they are fatigue-resistant because they have more blood supply, they have more mitochondria. And they are used more for, like, when we are running for a long period of time, like a long race or marathon. Glycolytic fibers, FG, are large, white, very powerful. And they are more suited for anaerobic activity or short duration, like uh, lifting weights, glycolytic fibers, or white fibers. And there's an intermediate type here, fast oxidative, glycolytic. We look red, but they are moderately resistant to fatigue, mostly used for not long distances, short distances, walking. And uh, there's an intermediate type. Now, additionally, these fibers may be not changed, but what we can do is increase one type over the other. And that is achieved by training. Now, there's genetics also for this. There are genetics. There are people that are more suited for lifting weights. They can develop more white fibers than the red fibers. Uh, but by, after training, we can modify this to a certain amount. And if we grab, usually if you see people that, long, that run long distances, marathon races, you don't see them like having big muscles. But some people are really skinny. And you see, how can they run so long time. I mean, they don't look like that strong. It doesn't matter. They have the fibers that are needed for that. Instead, people that lift away, usually you see them like big, huge muscles. But they need that. Muscular strain in a short period of time. Fibers are present in all types of, uh, in all muscles. And, um, Depending depends on the type of muscle that we have, the activity that it performs. We have more red, more white. Uh, but again, as I said, we can change this to a certain point by training. And depending on the task that we are performing, we can recruit more red fibers or more white fibers, depending on the activity that we are uh, having. Yes. Sorry, sorry. The, the different muscle fiber types, mm. um, are those what people refer to sometimes as men, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it depends on... Uh, but that's more related with uh, individual muscle fibers and the mechanisms that, that trigger this muscle twitching. But you can see it in both types. In both types. Now, uh, that's what we're going to do now. The different the, phases at which the muscle fiber contracts. Remember, we talk about excitation-contraction coupling. First comes the excitation, the nerve stimulation, and then the contraction. Well, here, it is translated into phases when we see the tension in the muscle. There is a brief period of time called latent period before the muscle contracts, before the myofibers start sliding over the other. And that's the time at which the action potential is going over the sarcolemma, Calciums are being released from the sarcoplasmic reticulum, and then the next phase is active contraction, followed by relaxation, when the calcium returns to the the sarcoplasmic reticulum. And there is a period called refractory period, that means that the muscle fiber at that moment cannot be stimulated again, because it's in the middle of the contraction, you cannot... Even uh, another action potential comes, the muscle fiber will not react. Contraction of a single muscle fiber can be recorded in a different curve that we see here. We apply a stimulus at time zero, and there is a brief period of time in blue here, called the latent period. That's the time when the action potential is traveling. Calcium is being released, active contraction comes after in red, and then relaxation in green, and refractory period, the brief period of blue where no muscle fiber can be stimulated again. It has to be completely relaxed. This figure is called a twitch, because it's the contraction of one single muscle fiber. Now, this muscle twitch, or the muscle fiber, is stimulated by an action potential. And uh, if we stimulate 1, 2, 10, or 100 muscle fibers, then we can get to increase the force of contraction. And what happens with the action potentials that are applied to the muscle fibers, there are different types of responses as we see here. First, we have a single twitch, one action potential, and we have the muscular contraction in that way. But if we have two action potentials coming on, and they are very close to one another, the muscular twitch has this behavior. The force increases because both twitches will add up to each other. And if we keep a stimulating with more action potentials very frequently, Then you can see this kind of ladder that increases the force of contraction is called unfused tetanus or sustained contraction. And even more, if we keep assimilating with more action potentials, very frequent action potentials, what we will see is called fused tetanus. So the muscle is contracted to the maximum, all the muscle fibers, and we have a tetanus, the tiny contraction because all the muscle fibers are reacting and there's not enough time for them to relax and practically remain all contracted and that can produce damage of the, of the muscle fiber. This is what happens in a disease called tetanus. It's a toxin that uh, affects the nerves and the nerves start stimulating the muscle very quickly, frequently making the muscle fibers to contract on this pattern of or, or fused tetanus. 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 Fused tetanus. like this word tetanus. That's how the disease is called. So the muscle is contracted depending on the number of motor units that are recruited. And whenever we want to increase the strength, it's not that we contract muscle fibers partially. We recruit muscle fibers. We want to contract more muscle, we recruit more muscle fibers. And that is achieved by activating more neurons, more motor units. Then finally, let's see some of the patterns of contraction. When we contract a muscle, now we're talking about the whole muscle. This muscle may contract in different ways. And there are two main things, two main types of contractions. Isotonic. And isometric. The difference is, if the muscle contracts isotonically, that results in movement. But if the muscle contracts isometrically, there is no movement, but the muscle is contracting. The isotonic may be of two types, concentric and eccentric. Concentric is that contraction where we see the muscle gets shorter while generating force. But the eccentric isotonic is the muscle contracting and at the same time the muscle gets longer. And you're going to explain how that happens. Isometric. Isometric is usually the type of contraction that we apply when we want to hold objects in a determined position. When you lift the box and you hold it in one position, your arms are contracting isometrically. You can touch the muscles, are contracted, but they're not moving. That's an isometric contraction. And isotonic uh, results in movement. How come we see here there two types of uh, eccentric and concentric the concentric simple example you grab a book or grab a phone and you make this flexion you bring it closer to you the muscle the biceps in this case gets shorter and is contracting at the same time but now what is eccentric for the eccentric what you do is you stretch your muscle and bring in the object back to the initial position When you try, you do uh, workout routines with the biceps, you do this. You lift the weight like this, but then you stretch your muscle. You sit with the weight there, feel your muscle. It is contracting, but at the same time, it's stretching, getting longer. That's called eccentric contractions. That's actually one very effective movement or type of contraction uh, to make the muscle more or stronger and make it grow more, those are the, the routines that are more effective. Like when you go to the gym and start lifting weights, it is better if you do, with the weights, if you do this and then the eccentric contraction slowly, like this, then you're making the muscle work really good. If you do this, you're doing nothing. You're just doing the concentric. An eccentric, you're doing nothing. You're not applying effort. So if you do this and then this, that is good. You cannot do more than eight repetitions with this. With this, you can make 30. You see a lot of people in the gym doing this. <laughs> not that smart. But you see someone doing this and making seven, eight, that's good. Well, it depends on the goal also. It depends on the goal. If you do this, it's not bad. I mean, you are doing a different type of routine. And that's usually for uh, more aerobic muscle, more aerobic metabolism. You don't want to make the muscle grow. You want to make your muscle work. But, you know, the other movement is, is has a different goal. Well, exercise may lead to damage, and this is what happens when the muscle fibers get damaged. is torn, muscle fibers are ripped. Z-disks are broken. And we have to repair. And the reason why I tell you when you go to the gym for the first time and they tell you, come back in three days. Or come back next week. You have to heal. You have to heal your muscle fibers. And it takes from three to five days to heal. It's very painful the second day. But then it depends on the intake of proteins, amino acids, and your metabolism level that will make it heal uh, faster. And that's when you can manage this. Uh, by getting supplements, by getting different types of uh, food and uh, taking care of your nutritional needs uh, depending on the goal that you want to achieve Spasm and cramp Spasm is a sudden involuntary contraction of a single muscle usually in a big group of muscles It's usually painless You feel the contraction but it's not hurting The cramp is painful and that's involuntary too, but this is caused by inadequate blood flow to the muscles. Like when you get dehydrated, when you have uh, exercise a lot, but you don't get a good level of electrolytes in the blood and sodium, potassium levels change and the muscle gets very fatigued and uh, there's a muscular contraction, which is painful. And as part of the aging process, we see the muscle fibers decrease in number, skeletal mass, and being replaced by fibrous tissue, connective tissue, adipose tissue sometimes. And um, the muscular strength at 85 is about a half that you have a, that you had when you were 25. So that's how muscular strength changes. But this can be maintained. This can be maintained by exercising. And if you not get the same level probably, but you will get a very good shape and the metabolism level will get very good. Okay. Questions, comments?